1: Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Joshua Prager about the new book, The Family Roe, An American Story, a masterpiece of reporting on the Supreme Court's most divisive case, Roe v. Wade, and the unknown lives at its heart. Well, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So how are you?
0: It's, it, I'm good. Um, we moved, so we've got a lot going on. We had an au pair arrive from Brazil. Um, Kids' school's ending, but I'm, I'm ready to go.
1: Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do?
0: I am a journalist and an author, and I spent the last 11 years writing a book about Roe v. Wade.
1: And how did you get interested in journalism?
0: Huh, good question. Um, you know, when I was younger, um, I decided right when I was finishing high school that I would be a doctor like my father. But then, when I was nineteen years old, um, I was in a bad bus accident and I had a spinal cord injury and at the time I was very disabled. I was a quadriplegic and it occurred to me or it seemed to me then that it would be very difficult to practice medicine with such a severe disability. And I started writing for my school newspaper um, and I loved it and I was pretty good at it. And so in a weird way, my disability led me into a career that I love.
1: And what topics did you start writing about?
0: Well, in the beginning, I was really writing sort of opinion pieces in college. And the truth is, when you're 18 and 19 years old and 20 years old, you think you know what you're talking about. Now, I wince when I look back at those articles. And in fact, I almost never write opinion pieces ever. Um, and I haven't done that for like 30 years, because I guess the older you get, you realize you know less. Um, and, I, and I really was interested in people's lives. I wrote a lot of sort of feature stories. And I'll tell you something interesting that also relates to my accident, this bus accident I was in when I became disabled. I, I came to think a lot about um, a lot about mortality and also a lot about people whose lives changed in an instant. And so I found myself writing again and again about people whose lives changed in an instant. And, and the genesis of my book on Roe is similar. I wrote about my interest was piqued by the child that Jane Roe, the plaintiff in this famous case, gave birth to. People had not sort of realized that she existed. And, and I said to myself, wow, you know, this lawsuit obviously Um, sort of changed her life forever and the moment when she found out that she had been born to Jane Rowe that was the moment that changed um, her life and so that was really what led me into this project.
1: So could you say that your accident really changed your life completely as well?
0: Absolutely and my life had in a sense sort of a before and an after before the accident after the accident and again I've written a lot about people like that whether there, and, and often people who've connected to history. So whether there was a in our country here in the States, it was a very famous baseball game. And there was a moment when, when, when a man hit a famous home run, he won a game. And I wrote about him and the pitcher who lost. Another, and they had a very clear before and after. I wrote about the only anonymous winner in the history of the Pulitzer Prizes who one click of the shutter changed his life and on and on and on. People with befores and afters. And the other kind of common thread that they all had and this is not connected to my accident, was they all had big secrets. Um, I've been very interested in secrecy and also sort of helping to, to help the public to know the way something really is, as opposed to sort of the narrative that we've all told ourselves. So again, in terms of Roe v. Wade, the secret here was that somewhere there was a child who was not known, who had since grown, whose conception led to the uh, lawsuit, Roe B. Wade, and that interested me very much.
1: Hmm. And on the topic of the craft of the journalism, so did you get any education or did you get uh, a few mentors along the way that were really supportive of you?
0: I did not go to school for journalism. I I did not. It's sort of an unnecessary degree. And when I was in college, I majored in music theory. Um, But I was interested, as I say, writing, and I thought maybe for a time I would do broadcast journalism and I interned at a radio station and at a television station, but it was only print journalism that I really loved. And eventually I got a job um, answering the phones Hmm. at the Wall Street Journal And while I was there, I started writing these tiny little articles. And yes, I did have a very special mentor, a woman named Melinda Beck, who really took me under her wing and taught me a lot, simplifying my language and activating my verbs and on and on and on, all the cliches, show, don't tell. And and I loved it. And I sort of continued to write and eventually... Um, four years or three years after I got to the paper, I wrote a, I wrote one story that really changed my whole career. It was about a, a boy. He also had a before and an after, a boy who had since become a man who had, there's a very famous children's book in our country named Goodnight Moon. It's been translated into every language, including all of the languages that are spoken in Switzerland. And um, this This woman who wrote this book, a woman named Margaret Wise Brown, she bequeathed the royalties to her books to this little boy who lived next door to her. Hmm. And he inherited this fortune, but no one knew what happened to him or where he went. He hadn't spoken to his family in 30 years. And I found him um, and that that article really changed my career.
1: And what would you say to our student listeners and to people who may also have been going through the same thing that you have been with regards to a choice of the career?
0: Wow. Well, I think the single most important thing, and I apologize if it's a cliche, is to find something you love to do. Um, That is definitely number one. I love writing, it doesn't seem like work to me. And that went right from the beginning, even when I was writing tiny little sort of uninteresting stories, I wanted to learn more and more and more. So if you find something you love to do, going to work never seems like a chore, it is a blessing.
1: So your latest book is The Family row, an American Story. And what inspired you to write it?
0: Well, um, I was in France for a year and I was reading an article in the magazine The New Yorker about uh, gay marriage and the fight, the legal fight for gay marriage. And it mentioned in the article that sometimes a plaintiff is not good for the cause she represents. It mentioned Norma McCorby, the woman who was the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, the famous case in America about abortion. And the reason she wasn't a good, perfect sort of plaintiff was she was uneducated. She spoke in language about uh, abortion that was not sort of pleasing to the leaders of the pro choice movement. And then also she switched sides. She later went to the other side. The article then mentioned in passing that Norma, Jane Rowe, had not had the abortion she sought, that because a case takes longer than a pregnancy. She had not been able, even though she won the legal right to have an abortion, she'd not been able to have one herself. And I said, my, wow, you know, again, getting back to secrets, I said, wow, my goodness, that's fascinating. What a fascinating unknown thing that the woman who won the legal right to have an abortion did not have one. And I said to myself, somewhere there is a child, a person now 40 years old, whose conception led to the legalization of abortion. They had been placed for adoption by Jane Rowe, I read, and no one knew who he or she was. And I wanted to find them.
1: All right. So let's delve into the details of the book. So could you describe where and when do we start?
0: When and where the book starts? Uh, yes. Yeah, so... So Norma McCorvey is the name of the woman who was the plaintiff in our most famous law case, Roe v. Wade. She was Jane Roe. And in our country, like it is staggering how polarizing this issue has become. Our country is sort of divided politically, and there is no issue that is sort of more at the heart of that division than abortion. And I believe that the best way to sort of tell someone about something is through human beings. When you can humanize an issue, it becomes real and relatable. And you strip away the politics. Well, I wanted to understand Norma McCorby. No one knew anything about her. She had written these sort of books, one on the pro-choice side, one on the pro-life side, that were complete nonsense. They were just sort of fiction. And And I said, "Hmm, I need to sort of get to know her well. I ended up, when I was looking for the child, as I mentioned, sort of the person I came to to see that the pro-life side referred to as the Roe baby. When I was looking for that child, um, I ended up finding my way to Norma, to Jane Roe's partner. Norma was gay. She'd had occasional relationships with men, but she identified as gay. I found my way to her partner And that partner in Texas was living in a home that was about to be foreclosed on. When I reached her, she told me that the house was about to be foreclosed, the papers, and that Norma's private papers were in the garage and about to be thrown out. And I said, please wait, do not throw those out. Can I have them? Mm -hmm. She said, yes. Norma did not want those papers. I later acquired them from her. They are now at a research library at Harvard. And on one piece of paper, there was the date of birth of the Roe baby. It led me into her life and then the lives of Norma's other children, then into Norma's life, and of course to Roe v. Wade and the whole of abortion in America. So in answer to your question, where does the book actually begin? I set out to tell the larger story of abortion in America through Norma. And so the book begins not even with Norma, but with her grandmother because I found out something amazing, that Norma was the third consecutive generation in her family to have had an unwanted pregnancy. Norma did not even know this. And I show what happens when a family is riven by unwanted pregnancies. And I show what happened to her grandmother, to her mother, and then to her. Her grandmother is sort of a young woman in Louisiana in the early part of the 20th century, Norma, it then goes from her to Norma's mother, who gives birth to Norma in 1947 in Louisiana. And then a few years later, the family moves to Texas.
1: So You were acting like a proper investigator, really, on this uh, quest, weren't you?
0: Yeah, a lot of my books sort of begin with good old-fashioned sleuthing, my articles and books. Um, it's, it's fun and exciting, but of course, it's in the service of trying to understand something complicating. And I'll say that even though, as I mentioned earlier, the pro-choice movement felt that Norma was not a good place plaintiff because she wasn't educated and she was she could be an unreliable narrator. As I mentioned, she lied a lot. She was actually the perfect plaintiff because the very same issues that made abortion and so complicated, enormous family are the same issues that make it complicated in America, namely the sort of seeming irreconcilability of sex and religion, Norma's family was religious. They started off Catholic, then Pentecostal, then Jehovah's Witnesses, and sex was something that seemed illicit and forbidden. And sexuality too, all the more so when Norma came out of the closet to her parents. so I, I realized, and, and that I argue, that same irreconcilability between sex and religion is what makes abortion so fraught in this country, in America at large, with our puritanical roots. And so Norma really represented America in a perfect way and abortion in this way. She, she was also conflicted about it. She came to feel that abortion ought to be legal, but only through the first trimester of pregnancy. And in this respect, she also embodied the majoritarian middle ground in our country. She didn't feel that abortion ought to be legal through the second trimester, through viability, as Rose says. And she didn't feel that abortion ought to be illegal from conception, as the pro-life say. In a sense, she sort of um, agreed with the way abortion is in Western Europe, where, again, abortion, the cutoff of legal Abortion is earlier in the pregnancy. But until that point, unlike here in America, there are not obstacles thrown in the way of the woman. The state helps her to have an abortion.
1: What was the political and socioeconomic landscape in those days?
0: The political landscape was totally different than it is now. People think that because abortion was, is so polarized now that it was then, they're wrong. It was not a partisan issue. Ronald Reagan and, and the senior George Bush believed in legal abortion. Um, there were reasons for that. A lot of the conservatives sort of felt strongly about personal liberty. Um, also, they had concerns about overpopulation. On the other side, a lot of the famous Democrats were pro-life. Ted Kennedy, uh, the brother of John F. Kennedy, was Catholic and he believed um, that abortion ought to be illegal. Jesse Jackson, for example, felt abortion ought to be illegal because it, it, it was particularly um, it was there were many, the, in the black community, the incidence of abortion was much higher than the white community. He felt that this was sort of very depressing. So the political landscape was very different. It was not a partisan issue. Um, socioeconomically, it was in a sense similar in that women who did not have money, um, would would struggle to, uh, to get an abortion. Wow. So even when abortion was illegal, for example, in Texas before Roe, it was legal in a few states, in four states in the, uh, before Roe. One of those states was California because Ronald Reagan as governor had signed into law the Therapeutic Abortion Act, which made abortion legal up until the 20th week. And if you had money, you could fly out there Um, But Norma had no money. And one thing that was very depressing is that Norma's lawyers could have conceivably helped Norma to have an abortion, but they didn't want to. Sarah Weddington, one of the lawyers, she worked for an abortion referral network, and she was part of a group that flew women from Texas to California. And in fact, Sarah Weddington had an abortion herself, had had an abortion in Texas, just in, in Mexico, excuse me just south of the border, but they did not help her to have an abortion because they needed her as a plaintiff. And Norma later lied and said that she, when she tried to find um, a clinic where she could have an abortion, it had just been shuttered and there was dry blood on the floor, et cetera. The truth was simpler and just as devastating. It was clean, it was safe, the clinic she found, but it cost $500 and she did not have that money to pay to have an abortion
1: so why was she sort of selected but maybe that's not a correct word but um she was in a place to be that plaintiff
0: yeah you're right the reason she was the plaintiff is because they couldn't find another one there actually was another possibility there was a woman named Marsha king who was everything the pro-choice community would have wanted she was educated she, she spoke beautifully about the issues. And unlike Norma, she didn't simply want an abortion herself. She, she cared in a woman's right to choose. Norma didn't care at all about the movement at that time. She simply wanted an abortion. However, Marcia was not pregnant at the time the lawsuit was filed. And so she was deemed not to have standing. And Norma was pregnant and they didn't have anyone else. You needed to find someone who not only was going to sort of bravely say, Hey, I will be a plaintiff here, even if I am, even if my identity is discovered, even if my pseudonym is sort of not, you know, even if they figure out who I really am. And they needed to find someone. So, in other words, someone who could deal with the stigma, but they also needed to find someone who couldn't afford to go to where abortion was legal. And so Norma sort of fit the bill. And they, Sarah Weddington and her other lawyer, Linda Coffey filed on behalf, um, they filed Roe v. Wade on her behalf uh, in March of 1970. And soon thereafter, they made it a class action suit so that it was um, a suit that would benefit or that was filed on behalf, not only of Norma, but, but all women, quote unquote, similarly situated.
1: So who were other figures in uh, this case? So you mentioned the lawyer, uh, for example, uh, uh, Ms. Coffey.
0: Yep. Yeah, she was very important. Um, One of the exciting things about writing my book for me was restoring forgotten people to their rightful places in history. And everybody in our country knows that there was a lawyer named Sarah Weddington who argued Roe v. Wade on behalf of her anonymous plaintiff in the Supreme Court when she was just 26 years old. But no one knows that she had a co-counsel, Linda Coffey. And I think I show persuasively that Linda was actually the more important of the two lawyers. She was the woman who filed Roe. She was the woman who conceived of its initial legal reasoning, grounding um, a purported right to abortion in a right to privacy. She argued half of the case in the lower courts. And most importantly, perhaps she had the guts to attach her name to it. Sarah Weddington did not want to do that. But what happened was Sarah loved the spotlight and Linda hated the spotlight. Linda was a real recluse. When I found her, she had not given an interview in, an, in 25 years. Right. And she was living in a house without heat living on food stamps in Eastern Texas. It was very sad. And so Linda was very important. And there was something else about Linda that really interested me. Linda was a religious Baptist when she was young. And at the time, one could be a religious Baptist and be a feminist. She was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest group of evangelical Christians in America. And and I didn't know this, but until 1980, the SBC was pro-choice which is amazing. It was only after sort of, well, various things happened, but it was only after abortion began to become really politicized and Ronald Reagan won election in 1980 that the the Southern Baptist Convention became pro-life. And so until that point, Linda could sort of exist as both a religious Baptist and as a feminist lawyer. She was also gay, and the Southern Baptist Convention had not yet renounced and repudiated homosexuality.
1: So, How was Norma impacted with all of this going on?
0: Well, it's kind of depressing, but she was sort of cut loose. Once the lawyers had what they needed from her, they didn't really remain in her life. They didn't even tell her when she won her case Mm. in 1973. She heard this on the radio. Um, And she sort of removed herself from the goings on, you know, she had a very difficult life when she was, I mentioned that her mother and her grandmother had also had unwanted pregnancies. Well, what happened to her mother was very depressing. Her mother gets pregnant at 17. She's in this religious home. And her parents, they don't say that they had also had an unwanted pregnancy when they were young, which led to their shock on marriage. They make her leave town. She has to go to the big city of Baton Rouge in Louisiana. She gives birth. They then take this child from her and and to raise for themselves. Hmm. And Mary has to pretend that that child is her sister not her daughter, which is devastating for her. She then becomes an alcoholic. Her life again has a before and an after. Um, she becomes an alcoholic. She gets married and has a broken marriage. She sleeps with many of the men. She's serving alcohol to these little towns where she's a waitress. And this is the home where Norma is raised in. And again, I mentioned they became Jehovah's Witnesses. They go to Texas. Well, when Norma Becomes a girl of sort of 11, 12, 13. She becomes somewhat wild. She is always in trouble. At one point, she leaves. She heads on a bus with a, a girlfriend of hers. Um, they, they leave the state. They're caught in a motel, sort of in bed together. Um, she's soon thereafter put in a, in a school for quote-unquote delinquent children. She's smoking and drinking. Again, she's reimagining this childhood. Um, When she goes to Catholic school, she then says that she was raped by a nun when, in fact, she had a consensual affair with a woman who was not yet a nun, um, someone who was pledged to become a nun. Norma then decides that she wants to get married and she marries a young man. She's just 16 years old. She's a car hop and he comes to, to order a meal from her. They get married at 16. She gets pregnant. She says, you know what? I will be a mom. But very quickly after the child is born, she realizes she doesn't want to be and she's unfit to be a mother. She begs her own mother to take that child off her hands. She's then really falls into a very difficult way. She's selling drugs. She's doing a lot of drugs. She has a second child, places that child for adoption. She then attempts suicide. She is a prostitute. She's having a very difficult life. And it's at that point that she's then pregnant for the third time and and decides that she does not want to go through this again, the carrying of a child that she doesn't want, the relinquishing of that child to adoption. And she becomes and she tries to have the abortion, tries to find a place to do it, but her doctor won't do it because it's illegal. And she turns to her adoption attorney who knew Linda Coffey from law school. And that is sort of how she becomes Jane Roe.
1: And just to understand to what extent these events in her life and people like her as well, the women, how um, how it was considered a personal failing or systemic failing?
0: Yeah, definitely, she was seen. You know, if a woman was pregnant and wanted to have an abortion, yes, she was looked at as sort of an embarrassment to her family. That is what had happened. Twice to her mother and her grandmother, um, and and it was just you know um, a great sort of like a scarlet letter, um, and she she was of course also as I'm describing a really sort of uh, a woman who had very little in her corner, and she was disenfranchised. And you asked earlier about the sort of socioeconomic you no know, status of all of this, or the its relevance, and it was incredibly relevant. There were people providing abortions in Texas um, who um, in places illegally, but they were were doing it safely. There was something called a clergy consultation service. I write about one of these people in the book, a very important man named Dr. Curtis Boyd, but someone like Norma would never find these people. These were mainly college girls and college women who were going to see him. She didn't have access, she didn't have information. And so, you know, her life was sort of rerouted forever by by this experience. And what's very depressing if you are a person who believes that a woman ought to have um, the right to have an abortion as I do, what's very depressing is that even the leaders of the pro-choice movement did not treat her well. They they marginalized her, they exploited her. Later on, when years after her abortion, she wants to sort of become involved in the movement. They don't really give her a seat at the table. They keep her at arm's length. And that is one of the sort of sad parts of story. the story. The degree to which class Um, has always um, informed uh, much of this debate.
1: And then looking beyond uh, Norma's life, so you did a fascinating job of uh, finding the so-called Roe uh, baby. So how did you go about it? And what kind of ethical and moral considerations did you have?
0: Yeah, it was very difficult. As I say, sort of, this was what initially led me into this story. And I first reached out to Norma to see if she would speak with me. I found a a minister who would connect us, and she didn't want to unless I paid her money. I told her I wasn't allowed to pay her money. Um, And I then reached out to the adoption attorney who had brokered the adoption to see if maybe he had records, but he had been murdered in an unrelated tragedy in 1973, the same year as Roe. I will mention incidentally that he, his name was Henry McCluskey, like Norma and Linda Coffey, they were all gay. And that's not a coincidence, because the fights for gay marriage, excuse me, the fights for, for the gay community and women's rights were sort of intertwined back then. Mm-hmm. And no one would have guessed back then that if you looked 50 years into the future, um, you know, gay marriage would be sort of uncontested. But a woman's right to choose would still be very much such a complicated issue and contested and divisive as it is. Anyway, um what I then did was I reached out to Norma's partner, a woman named Connie Gonzalez. Norma had left Connie after, Norma, after Connie had had a stroke. Norma was always better at sort of being taken care of than helping to take care of other people. And when I reached out to Connie, as I mentioned earlier, her house was about to be sort of foreclosed on and she mentioned to me these papers in the garage. And I got these papers and I went through them, thousands of papers, they were a big mess. A jumble, there would be speeches there and and taxes and holy cards and records and just a, you know the sort of the, the remains of a person's life. Those records, by the way, are now I, I, um, those records are now at a research library at Harvard um, in case other people wish to sort of access them. And anyway, on one piece of paper there was the date of birth of the youngest child, the youngest of Norma's three children, the child whose conception led to Roe. Norma had mentioned the date of birth in an interview she gave to a Catholic newsletter. I then found that there were 37 girls who had been born in Dallas County on that day. I knew it was a girl and I knew where she'd been born. And eventually that led me to, to find her, I reached out not to her in case she didn't know about Norma. I didn't want to upend her life. I reached out to her mother, the woman who had raised her. And this woman said, you know what? We do know about Norma, but my daughter is not ready to speak. She asked um, her daughter if she would speak to me. She said, no. I assured her I would never write against her wishes. And what I did do instead was I tried to find Norma's other children. And when I eventually did, and they were very excited to speak with me because they didn't know about each other. They had always wanted to find each other. Um, I then reached back out to Shelley, to the youngest. And I said, look, your daughter, your sisters, excuse me, are cooperating with me on the writing of this book. They're excited about this. Would you now like to participate? And she said, yes. And that was really the beginning of the book. And my interest grew from the three sisters to Norma, to Roe, to abortion in America, you asked about the ethics. It's a good question. As I think I was just sort of laying out now, I was very careful to tell people I would never write about them against their wishes. I was careful not to let them know things they didn't already know. Um, And, you know, they had already been looking for each other. If you're a journalist, you don't want to play God. You don't want to sort of foist people on one another, but they had been desperately trying to find each other already all these years. So I then brought them together way back in 2013. And when they came together, it was very moving. But of course, just because you're related to someone, it doesn't mean you're also sort of really a family and their coming together was complicated. And I then stepped back, you know, I, I brought them together as they had wanted. And then I just sort of followed each of them separately and wrote about them with their blessing. And each of them are sort of windows into different parts of America and different parts of the story of abortion in America. So it was complicated. I'll mention just one more thing as a journalist. I never I'm not among the journalists who write about themselves unless they have to. Like the only time I'm in my book. Is when if I'm not there, it would be sort of a lie or disingenuous. And so I'm I'm there when the sisters come together because I brought them together. But that was another thing that I cared about as well.
1: All right. So you can then look at the bigger picture and the whole ruling. And uh, what was the verdict? So what was decided and what impact did it have on the bigger um, audience and uh, the bigger community?
0: I'll tell you that, but you know, sorry for saying I didn't have something to add. Now that I think about it, when you ask about my process, (laughs) I'll say one thing. You know, I, as I mentioned earlier, care a lot about sort of humanizing an issue, showing people helping them to understand something through human beings. So what I did was I surrounded Norma and her daughters with other characters who would enable me to write about sort of every part of abortion in America. So there was an abortion provider, Curtis Boyd, I mentioned, who would enable me to write about the actual provision of abortion and the danger that abortion providers were in, et cetera, et cetera, and the actual mechanics of abortion. There was a person named Dr. Mildred Jefferson, who was the first Black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, who becomes really the architect of the pro-life movement. Um, She politicizes abortion. I wrote about her. And there's, again, we mentioned also Linda Coffey, through whom I could write about the law. So that was one very important thing, sort of finding the right people who would enable me to write this bigger story. And in terms of getting everything right, because Norma lied so much, as I mentioned, in addition to sort of finding her papers and interviewing her for hundreds of hours, I tracked down... Endless other people, hundreds of people interviewed them so that I would have reliable narrators to sort of tell me about every part of Norma's life and and about abortion in America. And I also always went back, as any journalist needs to, to the earliest interview. So, for example, we mentioned, you know, Norma earlier. I told you Norma is telling everyone now that she was in this when she tried to have an abortion, it was blood on the floor. It was very dangerous. Well, if you go back earlier, you find these little interviews that she gave where she tells the truth about how she went to a clinic and she simply couldn't afford it. So these were sort of all the ways that I tried to sort of make sure that everything was right. And also sort of to humanize the issue. As for your other question about what Roe sort of brought about in this country. Well, what's really interesting is initially it's not an explosion, not at all. It was a seven to two ruling um, it was really largely accepted. Insurance um, started covering it. Clinics sprung up in 34 states. Um, there were tax exemptions, sort of all the ways that something might be accepted it was. But there was one small part of the pro-life community that would not sort of recognize this ruling. And they started to fight against it in different ways. At first, their approach is to try to overturn it in one fell swoop using something called the Human Life Amendment, which would basically amend the Constitution to say that um, a fetus is a person. And if a fetus is a person, if you grant personhood to a fetus, then, of course, abortion becomes illegal. But that did not have sort of the political bite that they wanted to. It didn't work. So then they tried to sort of turn to the judiciary. And Ronald Reagan is appointing many judges who are pro-life. And little by little by little, it's becoming more and more and more politicized. But it's a very gradual process. To give one remarkable example, in 1975, two years after Roe was decided, the first justice post-Roe is appointed to the Supreme Court, John Paul Stevens, and he's not even asked his opinion of Roe. Now, when a justice is confirmed to the court, that's basically all they're asked about. Mm -hmm. As one journalist put it, these Senate confirmation hearings are just simply proxies on Roe. But back then that hadn't happened yet. And fast forward even 12 more years, 1985, when Justice Scalia, a very sort of powerful conservative is appointed to the court. He is approved without opposition, even though he has made it very clear that he doesn't believe that um, Roe is correct. He believes a woman should not have a right to choose. Two years later is when things really begin to change in terms of the nomination of justices to the court. That is when Ronald Reagan nominates a judge named um, Robert Bork to the court. And Bork is like Scalia very opposed to Roe. And this time, Senator Ted Kennedy, who has since flipped on the issue and now is pro-choice, he says that if Bork is is sort of approved and confirmed to the court, abortion. In America, we'll go back to the way it was pre Roe with back alley abortions, et cetera. And Bork is not, and his, his nomination was killed. He's not put on the court. And so abortion is becoming more and more and more politicized.
1: So then coming to today, i just going to ask, so what's going on?
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it is after 50 years of sort of, you know the pro-life fighting row in a, with a million different sort of approaches um, by making it so that abortion could not be paid for with Medicaid, which which um, which makes it harder for poor women um, by banning a certain type of abortion that happened in a case called Gonzalez-Vicard. Um by by introducing endless sort of. Um, bills that make it harder and harder for a woman to have an abortion, they require that she has to get consent from her partner and she has to sort of have an ultrasound mm-hmm. and she has to be told things that are not true by her doctor, like abortion causes cancer, et cetera, et cetera after all these sort of fifty years of different approaches um, they now have when when Donald Trump became president, something sort of very remarkable happened. Even though he was president just one term, he was able to appoint three different justices to the court, one third of the court. The first pick was really sort of stolen from the Democrats. Um, There had been a death of Scalia um, while uh, Obama was president but the Republicans made it basically impossible for him to appoint his replacement. They said it was sort of too close to the election, even though nothing like that had happened before. And so um, Obama tried to appoint uh, a judge named Merrick Garland, but he wasn't successful. And so when Trump was elected, he immediately had one pick. Then there was another pick. And then the third one happened when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Now, she was a hero, of course, to the pro-choice movement. She had fought for the rights of women for 50 years, but she made an enormous mistake. She obviously did not think that Hillary Clinton would lose to Donald Trump, but she should have stepped down while Obama was in office. And because she didn't, because of that one sort of flaw, about one mistake, her whole body of work of 50 years is really in jeopardy now because Trump was able to appoint a third justice to the court. And that means now that on our court of nine justices, there are five very conservative justices. The chief justice, a person named Rob John Roberts, even though he's conservative, he's very careful. He doesn't want the court to just be seen as a political institution. He also doesn't want to sort of have rulings that just flout legal precedents, something that the... There's a legal term for that, stare decisis. And so he doesn't want to overturn Roe now. He wants Roe to sort of remain um, good law and to simply have abortion become a little bit more circumscribed, to push the legal cutoff for abortion earlier in a pregnancy. But the five conservatives don't need his vote. And so, look, it's still possible that that Justice Roberts will change one of the other uh, justices' opinions. But in all likelihood, the justices are going to overturn Roe, and we're going to find that out any day now.
1: So was this set of circumstances somehow foresaw or was there some kind of contingency plans on the pro-choice advocates?
0: What was the first part of your question?
1: Were, uh, was this kind of way, um, set of circumstances foresought? Was it predicted in some way?
0: It's a good question. Look, in the beginning, when Roe became law, well, when Roe, in other words, legalized abortion, quote, free of interference by the state, end quote, when a woman had a right to choose, the pro-choice movement said, hey, we won it's over. We don't have to worry about this. And they didn't do a very good job. You can see time and time again that they're not sort of engaging. They're not fighting. They're not defending Roe in a way that they ought to have because they sort of feel, hey, we've won. And in in many ways, it's easier to fight against something than to defend it. And of course, Roe galvanized the people who were opposed to it. Well, what happened is, as the years went by, and I mentioned some of the different sort of successes that the pro-life were having, they were using things like fetal photography. They just sort of coming up with, kept coming up with new ways to fight against Roe. The pro-choice were always sort of playing catch-up. And once Trump had his three appointments, there was really nothing they could do. It was sort of a fait accompli. And now... Um, That this case came before the court and this case was put into the it was filed by pro-lifers because they knew that they would be having sort of a sympathetic court they could argue against. There's really nothing that the pro-choice movement can do now. However, just as Roe v. Wade galvanized everybody who was opposed to it, so too overturning Roe. I believe, will galvanize those who believe in a woman's right to choose. Um, You know, so many tens of millions of young and middle-aged, young and middle-aged women in this country, they don't remember a time when abortion was illegal. They've always lived at a time when it was legal. So it's hard for them to sort of relate to what that means. And now that, in all likelihood, we will go back to that, that time, I think it will sort of it will light a fire under them. I quote in my book, um, an essay that Susan Sontag, the brilliant essayist wrote just before Roe v. Wade, in which she says that only when an issue is truly politicized does it sort of, you know, wake people from their slumber. And I think that's going to happen now.
1: So where do you see us going from here?
0: Well, what happens now is if, in fact, the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, as we believe it will, because of that leaked draft opinion that we all read, in which they had five votes saying that Roe and the companion case Doe will be overturned, what happens is then the issue of abortion goes back to the states. There are 50 states, and we know pretty much how each of the 50 states are going to rule. It's it's roughly divided. Um, Half of the states will sort of overturn Roe, and half won't. And of course, as is always the case, it'll be in the states where poorer women live and often women of color live, where abortion is made illegal. Um, And so our country, which is so divided, is going to become even more divided. If you're a woman, you will be able to say, if I step on this side of the fence, abortion is legal. If I step on the other side of the fence, abortion is illegal. It is crazy. And the two sides will continue to fight. There will be fights over medical abortion. In other words, whether women are allowed to order pills in the mail to where they are to help them have an abortion. There will be fights over um, women going from a state where it is illegal to legal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fights are only going to intensify from this point out.
1: And now thinking about the bigger picture and maybe reflecting a little bit, are you optimistic that the society would be able to kind of bring itself together at some point and start being less divisive on these kind of issues?
0: That's a really good question. Look, as a journalist, you know, the most important thing for me was to write a book that I think, could humanize this issue. A famous constitutional scholar in our country, Lawrence Tribe, he wrote a book many years ago called Clash of Absolutes. And he said that the only way that America can ever sort of begin to bridge this divide is by, is by giving voice to the human reality on each side of the versus, the versus meaning row versus weight. Hmm. Now, I believe that. And if I may say, no one had really done it the way I did it until I did my book, wrote my book. And one thing that's sort of shocking is, even though it's just one book, it has actually been embraced by people on both sides. Now, that would have seemed unimaginable to people, but you have both advocates on the pro-choice and advocates on the pro-life who feel that they have been accurately portrayed and that the book is sort of a fair reflection of the state of abortion in America. And that gives me some hope to say that if people are fair about this issue, and if people respect each other, and if people recognize that abortion is fraught for good reason, it's not black and white. There really are two sides of this issue. It's a matter of degree, just as Norma McCorby, Jane Rowe herself recognized. On the one hand, you have the humanity of the fetus. On the other, you have the reasons a woman might wish to have an abortion. If people begin to recognize that, then I do think one day we can get to a better place. But that place is not sort of around the corner. America has become horribly polarized. People only exist in their little echo chambers. They only listen to people and speak to people who agree with them. And my book, I'd like to think, is helping people to look outside and and see you know, hear from other people. The epigraph in my book comes from Moby Dick, my favorite book. And Herman Melville writes, See how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love comes to bend them. Meaning, if you know somebody, if you love somebody, it's very difficult to be prejudiced against them. And my book sort of challenges readers to not come to feel. For people on both sides of the issue. And that I do think is the way
1: forward. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, The Family Rose, surprised you the most?
0: Mm, oh my God, so many. I mean, politically, for example, I had no idea that, as I mentioned earlier, the Southern Baptist Convention, this huge evangelical body, was pro-choice until 1980. Um, I, there was so much I didn't know. Um, Really understanding how America got to this point. I just had no idea. And I saw sort of a lot of secrets in my book, just to give example, one random example that leaps to mind. Well, this woman, Mildred Jefferson, who I mentioned earlier, one of the leaders of the pro-life movement, she came to be a true extremist. She felt that no one, that every single conception had to lead to a birth. You could never have an abortion. But I learned from her ex-husband, she was not alive, from an FBI file I found on her and on and on and on, that she actually had suffered a lot. She had experienced misogyny and racism very intensely. And that was why she had abandoned her medical career and turned to the pro-life fight and She felt that life was so unfair that her experiences had showed her how difficult life was, that she told her husband, who was white and she was black at a time when abortion was, excuse me, interracial marriage was illegal in half the country, she told him that she would not have a child. She would not bring a child into this world. And again, this is the very same woman who was saying that there never can be a reason that abortion is legal. So I kept discovering things that show that, that life is complicated, that abortion is complicated. And, um, you know, I, it challenges people on both sides of the issue to sort of to say to be a little less sure of themselves and to recognize that this is a difficult issue.
1: So you've met Norma prior to her passing, haven't you?
0: Yes, I spent hundreds of hours with her. I was actually with her when she died.
1: So, because she has become this really a sort of even mythical figure, such a huge figure in this uh, Roe versus Wade case, and you speak quite a lot about bringing this individuality and humanity uh, out uh, to the spotlight in your book. So, do you remember moments that were kind of so very banal and everyday, maybe like having a coffee with her or having a piece of cake?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was, she, (laughs) she was a hoot. I mean, we would go out and she would, um, I mean, I remember one remarkable thing she said, we were, we were, we had had a coffee together and then the phone rang and uh, her phone rang and a woman who was um, on the pro-life side called to sort of thank her for her example and Norma listened to her and, smiled and sort of assured her and then she got off the phone and said to me um you know it's a lot harder on this side meaning on the pro-life side as opposed to pro because you've got to act like you give a shit that's what she said (laughs) and I was like oh my god Norma and the point was she actually did give a shit about both sides but she didn't like being sort of held up as this sort of Holy, you know, um, lily-white person. She was not. She was a person who was saucy and, and, and cursed a lot and, and was very sort of real um, and embodied, you know, some very complicated um, realities in this country. But spending time with her, my goodness, it was actually fun and she was completely irreverent.
1: Hmm, that's exactly it. And actually it t- ties back to what you said in the beginning about being a perfect plaintiff. There's no yeah. such thing, isn't it? Uh, I mean, yeah.
0: And in fact, I argue, as I said, that it that she is a perfect plaintiff <laughs> because of her imperfections. She and her sort of inconsistencies and her ambivalences. Abortion is not black and white, not here, not in Switzerland, not anywhere. It is complicated and you know i'll get there are things in my book that please both sides and then infuriate both sides to give one example the pro life they want to say that abortion causes a woman emotional harm well the, to be perfectly honest yes there are individuals who had abortions who suffered emotionally but the great majority of of women who have abortions these studies show express relief not regret And that goes exactly the opposite of what the pro-life wanna say. And they say that a woman who doesn't want to have a child should place the child for adoption. Well, just as abortion doesn't usually cause a woman emotional harm, adoption often does. There There are enormous studies that show that even if a woman believes in her choice, Adoption is a very difficult thing to do. You always worry and wonder about the child who's out there. And Norma embodied these contradictions. She never had an abortion, as I mentioned, and she placed three children for adoption. She wanted everyone to know that she'd not had an abortion. That was something she wanted me to write about. It was one of the reasons she participated with me because I found her children and wrote about them.
1: Well, this has been such an insightful discussion. So what are you currently working on? and what will be your next project?
0: Well, um, thank you. And I, my next project is, I've written an article that will come out in the fall that humanizes another issue, affirmative action. The idea that if you are, let's say, um, Black, um, you maybe ought to be, uh, there ought to be different sort of admission criteria for you getting into a university. Um, I write about this in, by telling us an unknown story um, that happened at Harvard Law School during World War II that is really interesting and has a lot to say about where we are as a country. Um, you know, the Supreme Court is very conservative and they're probably going to overturn affirmative action as well. So I'm trying to sort of humanize these issues. Um, I'm also going to be writing something very different a little book that I've already um, begun um, about disability and identity to go back to how we started this conversation, writing about the accident that I was in and sort of um, um, how that changed my view
1: of the world. looking forward to reading that. And I hope that you come and talk to us once it's finished.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for having me.
1: And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Thank you. Uh, My website, joshuaprager.com, P-R-A-G-E-R. You know, they can um, find information about the book. Um, It's also an audio book. So people like my wife, um, you don't have to read it. She listened to it and it's read by a wonderful actor. Um, But um, yeah, on that website, I'm not on Twitter or social media or anything, but I do have a website so people can sort of see what I'm doing there.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.